very warm welcome to this short course on narrative shift in the digital age. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Catherine Bond. I'm the Partnerships Lead at the Atlantic Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's session titled Seeing, Believing and Measuring the Art of Online Political Persuasion in the 2020s. It is my huge pleasure and honour to introduce to you Inequality Media, who has designed today's session. Based in the US and founded by the former US Secretary of Labour, Robert Reich, Inequality Media's ultimate vision is, and I quote, a United States where active participation by informed citizens restores the balance of power in the US democracy and creates an economy where gains are widely shared. Like Atlantic, Inequality Media has made narrative shift integral to its mission, and it aims to realise this mission through the use of social media. Their videos have been viewed over 440 million times, and with 4.5 million social media followers, they have an average weekly engagement of 1 million people. So we have much to learn from Inequality Media's team and their associates who are joining us today. Heather Lofthouse, Cara Siegel, Amapuri, Alan Piper, it is an honour to have you with us today. Welcome. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Cara, who is Chief of Staff at Inequality Media. Thank you so much. I'm Kara. I'm Chief of Staff at Inequality Media. As Catherine mentioned, Inequality Media was started by former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, who I hope many of you had the chance to see about a month ago. What we do is we tell the story of economic inequality, particularly in the United States, but also there's implications and many trends that are seen globally. And I know that folks are here from all over the world. We're so excited to be able to talk to folks from all over the world about these particular issues. And what we talk about with inequality is how we got here, what we can do about it. And in particular, we like to myth bust stories told by those who are in power. So it's not just what are the narratives we are telling, but also what are the narratives we seek to undo. We do this primarily by making compelling and shareable videos and through social media. We'll talk more about all this tomorrow. But today I am so enthusiastic to introduce you to Alan Piper and Amar Puri, Two colleagues we work with very closely, they are seasoned and they know everything and they are going to take you on an exciting discussion about political persuasion, particularly in the 2020s, because what a time. Let me briefly tell you about them. Alan has been in the game for a long time. He is the former supervising producer of Now This Politics. He oversaw rapid response for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign video team. He also worked on the Obama campaign team. And he's been in TV and film for 20 years, so he has a lot of wisdom and knowledge to share. And then Amr, when it comes to the intersection of progressive and digital, he's done it all. He's been doing paid media campaigns. He's been doing strategic consulting. He's been doing lead generation. He's been doing data analysis. So he thinks a lot about what are the most effective and strategic ways to get your message out there. So over to Alan with no further ado. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It is exciting to see the Atlantic Fellows from all over the world here. As Kara said, I worked on President Obama's 2012 video team, and there was a reason that President Obama had a team of filmmakers on his campaign in the first place, and it was related to something he spoke to in a 2012 interview, saying 
The mistake of my first term was thinking that this job was just about getting the policy right, and that's important. But the nature of this office is also to tell a story to the American people that gives them a sense of unity and purpose and optimism. Now, many people wrongly assume that simply presenting the most compelling facts is the way to change minds and make a case for policy. But if this were true, we wouldn't have to worry about disinformation because the facts would always win out. And the sad truth is that psychological studies going back to the 1970s have repeatedly indicated that facts are not actually effective at changing people's minds. Emotions change minds. And the way to appeal to people's emotions is to tell a compelling story. And for decades, at least, the people with the facts on their side have over relied on those facts and largely failed to tell stories that have moved people to their causes. And the enemies of facts, knowing that they have nothing else to draw on, have become master storytellers. And this is why we have become so vulnerable to extremism and conspiracy theory. For facts to prevail, we need to learn to use the facts to tell better stories. So what makes a good story? This section of what I have to say is the most important part of what I wanna share. As technology and trends change, the ways that people tell stories will change, but the fundamental elements of what make a good story remain pretty much unchanged throughout history. There are a lot of elements to good storytelling. I wanna focus on three that I believe are the most key. Stories are about people. Now, policies are about people, so you'd think it would be easy for policy experts to frame their policies in terms of their impact on people. But for some reason, when people talk about policies, they tend to talk about them as if people were not even involved in them. I want to show you two recent headlines on the same subject. Urban poverty rose sharply after demonetization in 2016, World Bank study shows. This burning train is a symbol of the anger of India's out-of-work youth. These are both stories about the impacts of the same economic policy in India. Which of those articles do you think tells the more compelling story? And let's also look at the opening lines of those stories. Here's the first one. The broad finding of a World Bank paper that extreme poverty in India had decreased by 12.3 percentage points between 2011 and 2019 was widely reported by the media this week compared to 31-year-old Sumit Gautam has three bachelor's degrees and a law degree. I just don't have a job, he says. Both these articles contain similar data points and supporting links, but one tells a story about people. Now, I'm not faulting the first article. A dry technical explanation can be most helpful in some contexts, but definitely not in the context of public persuasion. A story can't be about poverty. The story is about people living in poverty, parents struggling to provide for their families, children without enough to eat. Whatever your issue is, poverty, inequality, inflation, gun violence, disease, if you want your audience to make an emotional connection, you need to center the story around the people impacted. Now, the caveat, if your issue is animal rights, you can focus on animals instead of people. But I'll say it's a harder sell, and you're still going to need to personalize the animals as much as possible. The 
issue where fact-based messengers have failed most in their storytelling in recent years, and it's not entirely their fault, it's an unusually challenging story, is on the issue of the climate crisis. This is a perfect storm, if you'll forgive the phrase, of a storytelling challenge. The key messengers are scientists who've been disciplined to separate emotion from their analysis, and they tend to fall into the trap laid by climate deniers of focusing their persuasion efforts around defending data. But stories aren't about data, carbon molecules, or sea levels. They aren't even really about polar bears. I'm sorry, I think they're adorable. Who doesn't? But I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that no one on this call has a friend or family member who is a polar bear. Most people, I suspect, have never seen one in person. And if they all suddenly vanished, I suspect none of you could come up with a very long list of tangible ways your life would be impacted. So images like this shouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the climate crisis. The second principle of storytelling I want to talk about is that stories have heroes and villains. A good story is like a choreographed wrestling match. And if I just spoiled professional wrestling for you by telling you that it's staged, I apologize. There are good guys and bad guys, or what wrestlers call baby faces and heels. Now, the story is about the heroes, so they have to be people, or in certain cases, animals, preferably not a polar bear. The villains don't necessarily have to be people. Your antagonist can be a disease or a natural phenomenon. But if you think about the stories, either real or fictional, that have moved you most, I think you'll find that most have a personified villain. And in the world of political persuasion, there is typically an opponent. Even if your antagonist is a virus, a drought, or a famine, there are usually people standing in the way of addressing the issue. And if there weren't, you wouldn't need a persuasion campaign. The more starkly you can set up the opposition between the hero and the villain, the more compelling your story will be. Now, I do want to couch that in saying we are at a moment, particularly in the U.S., of rising political violence. I do not ever advocate dehumanizing an opponent or characterizing another human being as evil. That's something to be very careful about. But unfortunately, I do find that the fact-based good faith messengers are usually cautious to a fault in this area and fail to point the finger of blame where it needs to be pointed. Too often, our narratives present injustice as just a thing that somehow happened and not the result of a choice or policy made by an antagonist. And when we fall into that trap, we fail to tell a story that is compelling, accurate, or gives the audience reason to feel that they have a role to play. Now, the third principle to my three principles of storytelling is that stories go somewhere. Now, here's something I bet most of you can relate to. A friend says, you'll never believe what happened on my trip. And you think, aha, this is a story. Does it have the elements of a story? Is there a person I can relate to? Yes, it's my friend. And he says, so my flight was delayed. And you think, boom, there's an antagonist, the airline industry, excellent villain for a story. So we've got two elements of the story. So now he says, there's a problem at security, a problem with his ticket, a problem with his seat, a problem with the person sitting next to him. And gradually you begin to realize he's not telling a story. He's just complaining. A story that doesn't go anywhere is just a rant and they get tiresome fast. Now, traditionally, we think of stories as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. You begin with a conflict, you take a course of action to address the conflict in the middle, 
and you resolve the conflict at the end. And this goes whether it's a happy ending story or a sad ending story. Now, the structure focused around an ending is problematic for the purposes of political persuasion, because there, the whole point of your story is that you don't know how it ends. You are trying to engage your audience to be part of finishing the story. How you tell an open-ended story that still has a sense of progression and resolution is to take your audience from a starting emotion to a concluding emotion. And the emotional arc that's going to work best for most political persuasion purposes will be a journey from outrage to hope. As you introduce your audience to the hero and villain, you establish an injustice or danger or problem that the hero faces, that's your beginning. The hero takes actions to avert the danger or correct the injustice, and the obstacles the hero faces increase the sense of outrage, but also introduce the element of hope. That is your middle. And your end is where the hope exceeds the outrage because there's the possibility for real change if the audience becomes involved. Now, I realize this may feel a little obvious, but please take a moment to reflect on how much of our public political discourse is simply complaining. The system is rigged, they're all crooks, our politics is broken. We need that spark of outrage to get someone involved in the story. But the seductiveness of that anger leads many communicators to simply wallow in it. And that's what causes so many citizens to give up and tune out. Without the progression from outrage to hope, it's just a rant, like your friend's story about his trip, and it doesn't go anywhere. So those are the elements that I think are most important to a good story. Now, why is video such a powerful tool for persuasive storytelling? Seeing is believing. In spite of the dangers of deceptive editing and now deepfake technology, Video is still a fundamentally honest way of letting people see things for themselves and see people for who they are. As someone who has sifted through thousands of hours of political documentary and reality TV footage, I'm struck by how easy it usually is to see on screen whether someone is being authentic or dishonest. When you look someone in the eye and you often have that gut sense about whether they're telling the truth, there are a lot of theories as to why that is. One of the more convincing ones I find is behavioral psychologist Paul Ekman's theory of microexpressions, that we reveal our hidden emotions through fleeting facial expressions that may last less than 1 25th of a second. These microexpressions go by too fast for our conscious mind to register, but subconsciously we see them. Well, the motion picture camera captures them too. In fact, a 25th of a second is very close to a movie camera frame rate. Now, there are important caveats here. A lot of our implicit biases are based on appearance. So judging someone's authenticity based on how they look is a loaded proposition. But ultimately, I believe the opportunity video offers of a face-to-face -face connection with someone we may never otherwise see in person has more potential to break down biases than worsen them. And that is perhaps the most important power of video, putting a face on an issue. As we've said, stories are about people, and there's no clearer way to display the humanity of an issue than with faces on screen. The danger I talked about, about erasing people from discussions of policy, if you're making a video about an issue, you almost can't avoid showing the people impacted by it. 
One of the great recent civil rights victories in the U.S. was how over the course of one decade, marriage equality went from being seen by most Americans as radical to being the law of the land and so accepted that it's now opposition to marriage equality that is seen as the radical position. On-screen representations of same-sex couples played a major role in this shift. In fact, then-Vice President Joe Biden credited Will and Grace, a fictional TV show, with changing his stance on the issue, which in turn led the President of the United States to endorse marriage equality. From about 2004 to 2012, there was a big increase in representations of same-sex couples in American film, TV, documentaries, TV news reports, and because this was the decade when YouTube emerged, personal home videos and wedding videos being shared publicly. I was one of the many people who made documentaries about marriage equality during that time. It was Married and Counting, which follows a same-sex couple of 25 years who protested the fact that they couldn't be legally married in their own state by going on a road trip to get married in every other state that would let them do it. At numerous film festival screenings, people would come up and tell me, this film changed my mind. I didn't get it until I saw it. It's easy to fear the things that you can't see. Demagogues want us to fear people that we don't think that we know. It's the fear of the things that we can't see that lead children to be scared of the dark. But once you see that people who love each other are just that, they're not scary. And the people who want to characterize them as scary have a much harder time getting away with it. So now let's talk about the specific challenges and opportunities of sharing video via social media. Roughly 260 million Americans regularly watch online videos. I know I'm speaking to an international audience here. My expertise is mostly in American video consumption. I know that Americans spend on average over five hours a week watching videos on their phones. And the opportunities to get a message in front of people's eyes are greater than ever. But the competition for attention is also greater than ever. So here are the rules that I advocate to people seeking to grab the attention of people through social media videos. First off, be flexible. On social media, we are subject to algorithms that are not transparent and are continually changing. And social media apps are continually changing their interfaces as they compete with each other. And this means that a lot of tactics that work today may not work tomorrow. Not long ago, most people who watched videos on an iPhone preferred to turn the phone sideways. So horizontal videos were the best format, but that's no longer true. The ideal length of videos is changing. When I started at Now This in 2017, 90 seconds was believed to be the optimal length for a Facebook video. Then Facebook rewrote its algorithm to prioritize longer videos so that they could sell more ads. And at the present moment, it appears that videos that are longer than three minutes are the optimal length for Facebook videos. As TikTok became a platform, video makers who'd gotten used to making three-minute videos had to retrain themselves to make videos under one minute. And then TikTok's time limit changed and then it changed again, and this is just part of the pattern. Reaching the most people with your videos requires being open to continual change, experimenting with different formats and strategies, and always reevaluating what is working. And at that point, there at least is some good news, and that is that some things never change. 
the fundamentals of a good story, which we focused on to begin with, have not substantially changed since the folk tales of the earliest human societies. And they're not likely to change based on the whims of an algorithm. No matter what the trends or technologies are, your story is going to do better if it's focused on people, has clear heroes and villains, and takes your viewer from an emotional starting point to an emotional ending point. That said, you are competing with everything in existence. There's one thing that's different about social video from virtually every other form of storytelling. It's a challenge that I don't believe any technological or algorithm shift is going to reduce. It's only going to become more intense. And that is the need to immediately catch the attention of your audience. The difference between social video and a TV program or a film or even a TV commercial is like the difference between a night at the theater and a carnival sideshow. Now, I happen to adore a sideshow, so there's nothing derogatory about that comparison. But like a carnival barker, you're trying to lure someone in who was not planning to see your show. Whereas a lot of good storytelling is based on a slow build at the theater. You say, hey, we're waiting for Godot. Do you think he'll be here? I guess we'll have to wait and see. He must show up eventually. His name's in the title, right? Well, a social video has got to instantly let you know We've got sword swallowers, fire breathers, glass eaters, a bearded lady, stop scrolling and step inside to be amazed. You've got approximately three seconds to give your viewer a reason to stop scrolling. It can be a striking visual. It can be an emotionally engaging statement that clearly announces what your video is about. It can be a curiosity provoking mysterious statement. It can be a grabbing newspaper style text headline. It can be an exciting moment from later in the video that teases what's coming, but you don't even necessarily know what it means when you first see it. But if you don't get your viewers to stop and watch your video in the first place, it does not matter how good the rest of the story is. This may sound obvious, make the beginning of your video exciting, but it actually requires a lot of focus and discipline to say something compelling within three seconds. And I'm continually amazed by how strong the impulse is for people to start a video with an introduction like, Hi, my name is Joe Smith, and I want to talk to you about a very important issue. In most cases, you've lost your audience before you've even finished saying your name. And that's with a short name like Joe Smith. Now, I want to conclude by addressing one of the most important questions about the internet. And it's really, I think, in some levels, one of the most important questions about the human condition. Are cats better than angry rants? This question is really at the core of what's happening on the internet. I can tell you in the 2016 election, a campaign slogan emerged accidentally. I can tell you firsthand, it was not focus grouped. It was just something my friend and colleague, John Bicey, said off the top of his head one day, and it stuck. Love Trump's hate. It became an inspirational rallying cry. But as you may have noticed, it was a rallying cry for a losing campaign. Whether love is actually stronger than hate is very much an open question for our society. And it is one that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with throughout history. On the internet, and social media in particular, it plays out in the question of whether people are more likely to watch, engage with, and share content that evokes compassion, empathy, and warm feelings, or content that sparks outrage and hatred. And I have some bad news for you. The data I saw at now this suggests that a large percentage of people would rather be angry than happy. 
Every year, the video, 10 Most Maddening Stories of the Year, usually outperformed the 10 Most Heartwarming Stories of the Year. If our goal is only to get the maximum number of views, and for some media companies, that is their only goal, appealing solely to anger, unfortunately, appears to be an effective strategy, probably in the world as a whole, but definitely on social media. But for us here, I'd like to think in this group, definitely at Inequality Media, and I'd like to think among the Atlantic Fellows as a whole, view count is not the measurement of success. Our discussion today is about persuading people to become not just persuaded for no reason, but to become persuaded to be engaged in achieving positive goals. Anger is a powerful motivating force. Extremists know this. If we want to effectively counter the message of extremists, we must be willing to harness and use the power of anger, a small measure of it anyway. But anger by itself is not effective at mobilizing people to do more than tear down. And this ties into what I highlighted near the beginning about the need to take people on an emotional journey from outrage to hope. This is where all the themes we've discussed today come together. A level of outrage isn't just useful. It's necessary to bring about change. If we are content with things as they are, there is no need for change. So a story that can inspire change has to start by taking offense at a situation that must not be allowed to remain as it is. The storytelling elements we've established create the conditions where that outrage can be sparked. You started by getting the audience's attention. You centered the story on a relatable hero character, making the story real and making emotional engagement possible. You placed that hero in opposition to a villain or a villainous set of conditions, thereby igniting the audience's outrage. But anger, even the normal everyday, ooh, I'm mad at this situation kind, takes a toll on everyone who carries it. So once you have elicited that anger from your audience as a storyteller, as an advocate for change, and I would even say as a moral human being, it is your responsibility. In fact, it's really part of the unspoken fundamental contract between a storyteller and a story listener to offer a relief and resolution in the form of hope. And I would argue that it is this transaction of replacing anger with hope that is the moment where an audience of a story becomes a participant in it. And it's this exchange that has the potential to transform your viewer into an ally. That, I think, is what we all aim for in the act of political persuasion. And so thank you for bearing with me. I hope it is more instructive and not like the friend's rant on an airplane that goes nowhere. Thanks, Alan. We're going to go ahead and switch over, and Amr is going to go over, take the controls, and tell us what he's working with. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. That was a wonderful presentation, Alan. Really impressed, really stoked to hear that. Alan said, you are competing with everything in existence. And I think that really describes what we're reckoning with in our work and what we're trying to achieve within Equality Media. My name is Amr. I'm a senior digital director with Speak Media. And our portion of the presentation is about using data-driven principles to find our audience, educate them, and also uncover our best content. So we're going to just roll through it sequentially here. A little introduction about who we are at Spake, jump into research questions, 
talk about content. We're going to use some specific examples from our work with inequality media. We're going to talk about audience definitions and building our audiences and finally discuss analyzing data. So we're a full services digital agency. We're very small. We're a group, less than 10 folks. We're tenacious and nimble, and we partner with our clients. So in this case, we partner with Inequality Media, but we also partner with other clients around the world, and we work on mostly progressive issues, everything from democracy to climate. We exist with a sole purpose. We are trying to uncover insights from digital noise from everything in existence in social media. There's a lot of it. And figure out how to make real-world meaningful change using the tools at hand. We start by asking ourselves really important questions. There's a never-ending process here in terms of asking good questions and leading with curiosity. We know there's a library of content. We know there's a ton of incredible videos that have been produced, evergreen videos that are relevant throughout time. And we are really interested in asking appropriate research questions about what we can achieve with those videos, what we can do with them on social for digital environments. I'll give you some examples of what those questions are. What content resonates the most with our target audiences? That's a pretty straightforward question, but has a lot of things about it to unpack. For instance, the word resonate is not something that you can always quantify. How do you define that? And what are the measures you're going to put in place to identify resonant content? Kara, I think, knows very well the challenge there. You get a lot of data when you test on social media. And how do you make sure you're following the right path? We're interested just as much as the question here as we are in unpacking the assumptions behind it together and figuring out what is meaningful. That's an example of one. What message framing resonates the most? And I think this speaks to Alan's presentation a little bit in that there's a lot of ways to package a story. There's a lot of ways to package a message. We consider them buckets in a sense. When you're talking about an issue like climate, you can talk about it through various lenses, through various frames as it relates to people's lives. You could talk about it through health the experience of asthma in your community. You could talk about it from the economic impacts. You could talk about it from how it will impact housing. There's so many ways to go in terms of when you talk about an issue. And we really like to explore that. So things like how do you package the issue? What is your frame? And that's a question that we never get an answer to. I think it's an iterative process. We always have more questions after we seem to find an answer because there's subordinate storylines to each narrative. How can we identify opportunities that drive deeper engagement with your content? It's great when people watch a movie. It's great when people watch video. It's great when people get experience consuming content on social media. But we're really interested in exploring how can we take that into different directions. An example would be one of the things we do with inequality media is try to get more folks signed up for the email list. Very straightforward thing where there is an email drip in place. There is a strategy there in place. We want to get more folks into that workflow. And so we're really curious about how do we turn folks who watch these videos, who engage with the content on social media into doers and engaging on the email side. Folks who go from engaged users, but don't actually connect with the organization beyond that to engaging with the organization beyond that, to doing the things that Robert is pushing for folks to do, maybe even donate. Hey, that's a good one. Raise some more money for the organization. So we want to really explore that sort of journey for folks on social media. And of course, how will we measure and drive persuasion? This is the bread and butter issue I think we're all wrestling with. How do you measure that? How do you know that the video that folks watch is impactful? Well, in some cases, it's a huge, big, obvious moment in history where things are clearly changing, right? And that is beautiful. We don't always get those. Sometimes we're fighting an uphill battle. And so we're really looking for how do we measure that in those small incremental ways with contact with media on an ongoing, regular basis.
How would we set ourselves up and what are some of the ways that we set ourselves up to do this work and try to get answers to those important questions? Again, those are just some examples. There's always more questions to ask. And the first thing is we have inputs and outputs. So we're throwing content into a machine. What does that machine do? It takes the content, it takes the audiences that we've developed, those personas and models on social media, and it does matching. So we're sending our content out on things like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And we're really exploring it to this year. I think we're going to explore more TikTok. We see how those matches perform. We analyze data at a very granular level to see what users are doing with each piece of content. We ask questions about that. We don't assume anything about how the audience may or may not respond to the content. Sometimes we're testing things like the first five seconds of a video. Sometimes we're testing bigger questions like framing or narrative or presenters or people or stories. There's a lot of questions. And then we analyze the data that we get back. And the beautiful thing about social media advertising is that it's relatively cheap. We don't replace things like polling. We don't replace focus groups. What we do is we augment our data set. We add flavor to that. So you get a poll maybe where it says 76% of Americans agree on a particular issue. Well, we know that those polls make their rounds, right? Folks read them, you read about them, you see news articles about them, you might see it on the news. But what we're interested in is how does that translate then to those stories that Alan spoke about? What does that mean in human terms, everyday terms? We're really curious about that. And so we analyze the data with that in mind. What is the broad scenario that we're in? Is there a broad consensus? And if not, or if so, how is that reflected in the data that we get back or perhaps challenged in the data that we get back? We're really always curious. What are we going to get back? How's it going to look? Is it going to match what we know? Is it going to challenge our assumptions about how people feel emotionally, perhaps? Social media can be a dirty space. Engagement in the data isn't always beautiful and clean, but we definitely do our best to distill learnings from that. And as we do that, we develop a feedback cycle where we share the insights as we learn. We talk to the inequality media team, in particular in this case, about the insights on a weekly basis. We unpack our findings, and then we repeat the things that work. One of the things we're really pushing for is the repetition of those resonant narratives. And we know that ongoing persuasion work takes time. Paid and organic work hand in hand. So we're looking for a sort of all of the above strategy when we think about how individual consumers who are out in the real world, especially voters, make decisions, encounter and engage with the content in their everyday life on their cell phone. And we really push mission-driven organizations like Inequality to leverage the ad networks that exist within these social media networks to really finely and quickly target, distribute the content to them, and then identify how that content performs. And of the pool of content we're testing, pull out the best performers. Which ones are showing that sign of, hey, this is a special piece of content. This is not only resonating broadly, but it's people are watching it longer. People are doing things when they watch it, like sharing it. We look at ratios of different types of engagement. So some of those things are sharing and commenting. We want to evaluate them against each other. We do qualitative analysis. And we know that as we do that work, as we distill this ongoing body of distribution, that we're hopefully increasing awareness and consideration over time and softening the ground for progressive ideas. And that can lead to actual change as folks absorb those ideas, think about them, consider them, and maybe take action next as a direction and a progress for an individual in society. To go deeper into our work with inequality media, we have a huge library of content. Alan, the team, 
they are prolific. And that's the beauty. We are not the producers of the content, but we come in and saying, hey, let's take this and keep it going. It may be that 100,000 people saw a video one day, and then the distribution stops because an algorithm is at play. And that video has decayed over time. People saw it, people shared it, it had its shelf life, and then it just sits there on the shelf in the back. It doesn't get seen. It's just there. And what we like to do is take that content, shake it up, bring it to the front, make sure that our target audiences see it and retest it over and over again. Perhaps that story about, for instance, here are five points to counter the NRA may become relevant again. As you may know, the United States is going through a lot right now, in particular around violence with guns. And that is something that we reckon with on a daily basis. Now, that story, that video, may be something that becomes relevant again throughout time as we experience traumas, as we experience things, and we think about these things. These things become forefront in our minds, and we are always looking for those opportunities. And the beauty of Inequality Media's work is that there is a huge library, and there's always something relevant that has great information in it and is told in the most compelling way it can be. Of course, we take that. We want folks to see it. Now, targeting your audience starts with, of course, developing a persona, understanding who you're trying to move. One of the things that we do, and this is not exclusive, this is just one element of it, is target particular states. We know that in the United States, political geography is weighted depending on where you live. So like if you're in a particular state that's considered a purple state, which means that it may have a tendency to vote one way and then another election vote another way at the federal level, you may see it flip flop. It may be that it's voting Republican one election and then Democrat another. We consider those quote unquote purple states. Those are geographies where we do focus a lot of testing because we're really curious what folks in those purple-leading geographies within those states are thinking about the content. How are they engaging with the content? And some of the more granular targeting that we look at are folks who have already engaged with the content. We call them super viewers, folks who are watching it for at least maybe 75% of the way through. Those folks we know have watched video content before, and we're really curious sort of as our benchmark and our baseline audience, how they respond to video A, video B, video C. We are really interested in what suburban women think about the content, how they engage with the content. And of course, BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities in the United States, how they engage with the content as well. We know that these are important communities to engage with. We want them to see the content, we want them to engage with it, and we also want to know what our potential is to help move that audience, because we know broadly that there's plenty of disinformation happening directed at those audiences as well. And so one of the best ways to inoculate, if you will, is repetitive contact with your message, but also reaching folks first. So making sure that the first narrative, the first story they see that can help form that initial opinion is coming from a place of progressive ideology. And of course, we do a ton of data analysis to answer that research question. So when we ask ourselves, what was the most resonant content? Which audiences engaged the most? How did they engage? And try to find those answers. We try to answer it with data. We are happy being wrong. We're happy being right. We're happy being neither of those things. One of the driving principles in data analysis for us is curiosity. There's no silver bullet here in terms of unlocking the secret video and the secret audience that will now change things in a single exposure. We're really interested in investing in repetition of the most resonant content, the stuff we find as we do the analysis, those opportunities we see, and doing that on an ongoing basis. And we know that if we don't take up space that way, if we don't find those opportunities and distribute them granularly to those key audiences, that we're conceding space effectively. 
Because when we don't step forward into that space, there is another group that's ready to step forward into that space. And it's the well-funded opposition that is very adept at storytelling and narrative building. So we are using data to do our best work to step forward into those spaces with those key audiences and hopefully inoculate them against this misinformation or at the very least have the opportunity to change their hearts and minds. Every week, every time we do a test, we find ourselves at a moment and we say, what do we do now? Knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know. And this introduces us to another round of thinking where we have to make a decision. Do we continue investing in A or B? Do we continue making decisions the way we've always made them? Do we need to adjust our course? Is there something else that we don't know that we need to figure out? And so that can lead to another series of research questions. It's an iterative process. It's not one that's set in stone. It's defined, again, by curiosity, by doing your best at analyzing what's in front of you, challenging your own assumptions, and asking questions. To close off, we work with a lot of clients that work around issues of climate, democracy, and there's commonality. I think Alan hit the nail on the head when he was talking about the fact that things are always changing. We can't assume that what's true today is true tomorrow or will be true the next day. We are in a really competitive space. People are increasingly spending more and more time on their phones and attention spans are shortening. So we're always seeking ways to be appropriate in that space and push the envelope so that mission-driven organizations can achieve their goals in the world. Thank you, Amr. Does anyone have a question that they wanted to chime in with before I hog the floor? I had a question, if I may, which was, which of those narratives have you developed, which you have found most effective around inequality? Which ones do you repeat? The need of stories to have heroes and villains. Robert Reich is the voice and the face of inequality media. And I think that he is particularly eloquent in being able to express how the wealthiest people in society, the billionaires and CEOs, have shaped the whole economy to benefit themselves at the expense of everyone else. And I think that for as long as it's true, which is unfortunately pretty well entrenched at the moment, for as long as it's true, it is a very powerful way of addressing the issue, both because it is factually accurate and because it gives clear antagonist characters. Heels, as I compared to the wrestling analogy, it's not just this big structural society-wide thing. It's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and various high-level, big-dollar donors to political campaigns who are changing policy to benefit themselves. So once you've got that message across, which presumably in many places people know that and understand it, once that message is out there, do you then follow up with a message around, well, what we need to do is X, Y, and Z? How do you move from this is the issue, this is the problem, and how have you around that created the hope and the alternative? As I said, it's not enough to just be outraged. You have to give people an action that they can take. And it depends on the specific focus of the video. For instance, as Amr mentioned, even by U.S. standards, there's been an increase in gun violence in recent weeks. So there have been videos and posts that call on people to call their lawmakers and support legislation. Sometimes it is urging people to vote for a candidate or a policy. Sometimes it is urging people to advocate for a policy. And I do think that that is something that, fortunately, Secretary Reich, because of his expertise, he does give very solution-oriented discussions of inequality. 
There are many videos I know are currently in the works this month that are focused around, here are three things we can do to improve worker conditions. Here are five things we can do to stop corporate price gouging, et cetera. Have you then seen the shift from those things? Were you able to detect the change, the impact that you had? That is one of the things that is tricky. It is very hard to measure Except at the ballot box on election days, when you have changed someone's mind, especially if it's not someone that you are in direct communication with. That is, I think, one of the challenging things. Video organizations that have a goal to create change and influence people can easily measure how many people watched the video. And that is an important metric because you're not going to change anybody's minds if nobody sees it. But it is hard to know the immediate impact that the videos have. There are occasions where you do know. Sometimes videos are very highly targeted. There were instances where we would do a highly specific video. There was a video about a particular piece of legislation in Massachusetts that would offer protections to people with disabilities who were in government-run care facilities. The piece of legislation had been stuck in committee for years. We released the video, and I specifically sent the video to Massachusetts lawmakers, and suddenly this bill that had been stuck in committee for years was advanced out of committee and very shortly thereafter became law. And I don't think the timing is a coincidence. So there are times like that where you know. There was another one, someone in California who was coming up for parole but needed the governor sign off on it. We made a video and we don't know for a fact what the deciding point was, but we do know for a fact that the governor saw the video and that the person was released on parole. But even then, you don't know for sure the impact that you had, but you can begin to measure it. I'd love to add that there's different approaches to measuring persuasion as well. One of the ways that we work is just sort of the drumbeat of content. It's like long-term narrative work. If someone sees these videos and they tend to watch this length and they are then persuaded by it, we ask ourselves that question and we have tools in place like about persuasion lift studies, ongoing engagement. And then we have these other things, which are like things we talked about, which is just daily action. So does someone then consume the email that Robert wrote? Do they click and they do something? There's links in the emails. Do they take action? Do they open it? Do they become donors to inequality media? Do they actually do something concrete there to help support the work that they see being done? And do they believe in it? So those are different parts of the funnel where we know we reach someone we know they're generally at the very least aware and maybe considering this idea. And then we can see how they proceed through that client journey, customer journey, citizen's journey to become an engaged citizen in our case. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I feel like we're just getting into some really, really meaty conversations. So I'm very pleased that we've got two more sessions. Alan, Arma, Cara, Heather, thank you so much on behalf of all of us. So much rich content. I'm feeling quite inspired. I love that whole idea of a journey or progression from outrage to hope and getting to that point where hope exceeds the outrage. Are cats better than angry rants? I was sure you were going to say yes and no is the answer. So that was real learning for me. Also, the idea that just one video to one right person, I always think of social media and it needs to be millions of people and how are we going to contact them and getting the right person who has the power or the influence and getting them to see the work can make all of the difference. 
So thank you again so much. Tomorrow we'll be meeting for the session Viral Moments and Hacking the Algorithms, Social Media as a Vehicle for Change, which is much more about the practical nuts and bolts about how you might start to develop your social media narratives.